Look up at the sky next time you're outside in a dark place and try to find the constellation Andromeda. No shame if you don't know where it is. I used an app called Starwalk to find it. At the far northern reaches of the constellation is a star called Lambda Andromedae. Any aliens cruising near it today, aliens who happen to have their radio transmitter tuned to just the right spot, would perhaps pick up an unusual sound. Adolf Hitler announcing the opening of the 1936 Olympic Games. Ich verkünde die Spiele von Berlin zur Feier der ersten Olympiade neuer Zeitrechnung als eröffnet. It's been 84 years since that happened, so the transmission of that broadcast, one of the very first on this planet, would have traveled 84 light years, well outside our own solar system. That 1936 broadcast was one of a trickle that quickly grew into a waterfall of radio and television signals, rippling out from Earth into the universe over the next few decades. So an extraterrestrial civilization in the right place, at the right time, with the right technology might, perhaps, know that we're here. But those are incidental. Our direct messages to potential alien contacts, at least the official ones, have been few and far between. Because what would we say to them? Who speaks for us as a planet? And are we sure we want to be yelling into the void? I'm Laura Krantz, and this is Wild Thing, Space Invaders, A series about the search for extraterrestrial life, where we're looking, what we're looking for, and why we hope we're not alone. So, to repeat that question, are we sure we want to be yelling into the void? That's been a point of debate for some time now. People within the SETI community realized it was a really polarizing topic, and one of the things that made it provocative is the noted cosmologist Stephen Hawking issuing this warning about whatever you do, don't transmit to the aliens. They may come to Earth and strip mine our planet for its, its rare resources. That's Doug Vakoch. He's the president of an organization called METI which stands for Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Well, for over 50 years, astronomers have been using radio telescopes to search for signals from other civilizations around distant stars. And that's called SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. METI is the flip side of SETI. So instead of passively listening for signals, we actively transmit powerful, intentional signals to try to evoke a response from other civilizations that may be out there. I heard repeatedly about how Stephen Hawking had warned against doing this because meeting an advanced civilization could be like the Native Americans encountering Columbus. As we all know, that didn't turn out so well. But Doug takes issue with Hawking's opinion, and he isn't the only one. Some of us found that even when other folks uh, in the SETI community, um, astronomers, engineers, physicists, heard that and disagreed with it, there was really a lot of reluctance of moving ahead with transmissions because, you know, who in their right mind wants to contradict Stephen Hawking? No one. No one wants to contradict Stephen Hawking, which made it harder to get messaging programs off the ground. I mean, there were significant concerns about what impact might this have on funding if you're uh, doing something that is controversial. 
But Doug thought that staying silent on the sidelines would be a mistake. The best time to send a message was 20 years ago, he says. And the second best time is now. Especially because it would take such a long time to get a response back. I mean, we can delay uh, another 50 years or 500 years or 1,000 years, but that means we also delay being able to test this. Yes, we might say something dumb. And yes, it might get misconstrued. And of course, we're making assumptions about who could receive this message, their level of intelligence. Even if they do have something like a mathematics and a science, there's no guarantee that it will be identical to ours. So I take it that there is something real about um, atoms and about the structure of the galaxy. But science is not just simply a reflection of reality as it exists, but it's our way of coming up with a representation, coming up with a model of it. We don't know how they might interpret our message or how we'll come across. You know, I could imagine an, an advanced civilization saying, hey, we've, we found someone from this uh, planet Earth. They seems like they're still fixated on binary digits and, you know, basic math and science. So I, I think it may reflect much more than uh, we think. We hope that we get across the intended part, but it may give them even deeper insights into us as a civilization. But there's no chance of learning anything unless we try, even if those answers don't come for hundreds or thousands of years. I see um, messaging extraterrestrial intelligence as a logical next step of our evolution. You know, I I hope uh, that there are civilizations out there transmitting messages for our benefit. But what if everyone's doing what we are, just listening and not transmitting? It could be a very quiet universe. Someone has to start talking. Might as well be us, right? Doug isn't certain that these messages will ever reach anyone. And even though he advocates for communicating with the great beyond, he's not actually sure there's other life out there, which definitely surprised me. You'd think so, wouldn't you? Um, But no, Uh, I I think it's certainly plausible that there's life out there. I, I would be shocked if there isn't at least microbial life and the universe is an incredibly big place. So it's hard to conceive of there not being intelligent civilizations out there somewhere. But it's perfectly conceivable that they're so few and far between that we'll never make contact with them. I find it disheartening to think about spending your whole career asking a question that you might not ever get answered or even really believe in. But Doug seems to be at peace with it. And you have to live with the possibility that it's just what you want to find, you can't find because it's not out there. And no one in this generation or any other generation is going to succeed with it. You have to be willing to do that. For anyone who wants a guarantee, don't go into steady or Medi. Keeping all that in mind and keeping their expectations in check, Medi has already sent one message back in 2017. And this was in partnership with a music festival in Barcelona called Sonar. So they contacted us, asked us if we would write a mathematical and scientific tutorial to help the extraterrestrials understand music. Essentially, the idea is that music is a universal language. The message went out to an Earth-like planet with the lyrical name of GJ273b, which orbits a star about 12 and a half light years away. 
We design messages that should be understandable by any civilization that can create the technology needed to detect the signal. So that's what we have in common with the aliens. We're sending radio signals, they get them. That means they have a radio receiver. A receiver that's pointed at us at exactly the right time when the signal hits their planet. If the DJs on GJ get the message, we could hear back in about 22 more years, around the year 2042. In other words, don't hold your breath. It's going to be a little bit. In the meantime, Mehdi has plans for another project called Hello Universe. They'll collect messages from people around the world, saying hello to the cosmos in their own way. And I asked Doug how they decide what information is most important to convey. I, I think if you... If you wait until you know the most important information to convey, you'll never begin. But that is the call. That is often the call. How do we fully and adequately represent humankind in our first message? You probably can't. I don't think there is a perfect way to start this conversation. But the first time you talk to a stranger is always a little awkward. And usually, the best thing to do is to press ahead. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The scientific community has sent very few other deliberate messages. In 1974, using the giant Arecibo radio telescope in Puerto Rico, scientists transmitted a message using binary code, ones and zeros, like the Matrix. It went out to a star cluster known as M13, about 22,000 light years away. So that message, which contained details about how we do science and math, is still rather far away from its destination. A few years after Arecibo, we sent out another message as part of the Voyager program. Back in 1977, scientists launched two robotic space probes to do flybys of Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, and Uranus. Before launch, the famous and much-loved astronomer Carl Sagan had the idea of attaching a golden record to each probe. Those records hold sounds and images that supposedly portray the diversity of life and culture on Earth— on the slim chance that some sort of intelligent aliens might find them. Yeah, and by might you mean probably not, because space is big, and the poor little guys are really small. (laughs) But if they do, wouldn't that be great? Sherry Wells Jensen is a professor of linguistics at Bowling Green State University in Ohio, and she loves Voyager. I think about it every day. I think, you know how you get up in the morning? Okay, wait, maybe this is just me. You know how you get up in the morning and you look to see where the Voyager probes are? Like, how far away are those little guys? NASA maintains a website with constant status updates on both probes. Google, where are the Voyager probes? And it's the first link that pops up. Hi, little guy. How you doing? You're so far away. Hi. Um, I wake up in the morning, I think, I wonder if it'll be today. Wouldn't it be great if it were today that we got the message today? Could happen any minute. I mean, I don't wait breakfast on that, (laughs) but I think about it all the time. 
If aliens did find one of the probes, not only might they be able to trace the trajectory back to where it came from, but if they figure out how to play that record, they might have a better idea of what to expect when they get here. I mean, really, the Voyager is kind of putting the, putting the golden record together uh, was kind of a message from ourselves to ourselves about who we are. So they'll know we're a navel-gazing species. And whether they'll understand it, I mean, Carol Sagan, who was instrumental in having that record put together, even said, yeah, I don't know, probably they're not going to get it, but we did it, and it's good. And he also said, and I think this is also true, that a more advanced civilization than ours probably has a science of xenolinguistics, and they'll pick up our little probe and they'll go, oh yeah, okay gang, it's a type nine. Uh, look at them, they communicate with sound. Oh look, here's another example of alien music. Nice, okay, catalog it. The Voyager probes have been traveling now for roughly 43 years and have both crossed into interstellar space, leaving our solar system behind. As of when I recorded this episode, on June 17, 2020, Voyager 1 was over 13 billion miles away. Translated to light years, that's just over 20 light hours. The distances just blow my mind. The odds of someone finding this proverbial message in a bottle are ridiculously small, microscopic. So let me stop here for just a moment and say that I know this is particularly speculative and kind of puts the cart before the horse. Because we don't even know if there's life out there in the universe, let alone the kind of life that we might be able to communicate with. But it's still really fun to think about. So one of the questions is this. Is anybody out there? And how are we going to find out? And what are they going to be like? And how do we get ready for them? Sherry Wells-Jensen is also involved with METI as a member of its board of directors. And so the question is, shouldn't we say hello? Should we put ourselves out there and say, hey, guys, we're Earth, we're here, we're, we're intelligent. Um, are you there? Hello, 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 is anybody there? We're just kind of standing around at the party going, is anyone going to talk to me? I wonder if anyone's going to talk to me. I feel sad and alone. Is anyone going to talk to me? Without, you know, walking up to the bar and saying, hi, how are you? Besides, as you've already heard, we've made our presence known. Arecibo, Voyager, and all those radio and television broadcasts. It's not like we're not messaging. We're just not doing it intelligently. Right? I mean, we send freaking Doritos commercials into outer space. She's not kidding. In June 2008, a British university, the University of Leicester, worked with a Doritos company to transmit a 30-second video clip into space. The ad, in which a tribe of tortilla chips sacrificed one of their own to the god of salsa, had no dialogue, but was supposed to provide a snapshot of life on Earth. What message that snapshot was trying to convey? I'm not entirely sure. Maybe that the public shouldn't be allowed to decide what we say to extraterrestrials. In any case, the scientists involved directed the signal at a solar system in the Ursa Major constellation, about 42 light years away. So it's still not there. God knows what the aliens who live there will think when they get it. It's a weird video to begin with, and without context, it might seem kind of disturbing. Could give new meaning to the phrase snack attack. But back to Sherry's point. So as long as there's a bunch of crazy people sending Doritos commercials to other planets, 
there might as well be a couple people sending smart, friendly things. And that's what I think the, the idea of METI uh, as an organization is all about. So let's, let's send something smart and kind uh, that hopefully makes a little bit of sense, as opposed to, hey, everybody, Doritos, they're great. This is not to harsh on Doritos. I love Doritos. Cool Ranch followed closely by Nacho Cheese. I also loved Jumpin' Jack, which was discontinued, and I consider that an enormous error. However, as delicious as they are, I'm not sure Doritos should be our intergalactic representative. They are, however, a perfectly fine snack when you watch movies. Like, say, Arrival. Did you guys see it? It came out in 2016, and it's a good film about how you'd even begin to decipher alien jibber-jabber. Quick recap for those who need it. About a dozen alien spacecraft show up at locations around Earth. Scientists and military experts get sent to study them, including a linguistics professor played by Amy Adams. Her role is to figure out the aliens' language and what they're trying to say before war breaks out. It's probably every linguist's dream. It's certainly Sherry's. Love it, love it. It was six kinds of great. She's not waiting for a bunch of orbiting spaceships, just a simple radio signal. But the idea of that stirs her imagination. It's the most marvelous frontier that there is, right? What an adventure. What an astonishing thing to be people who are trying to construct a message across this darkness, across this void, across this scary nothingness to try to find kindred out there. That's one of the most important things that's happening right now. Sherry is excited about language in all its forms. As a linguist, she says, she's not judging your grammar skills. We're not the language police, right? Our thing is language is beautiful and important. And in my case, I would go all the way to languages, magical and wonderful. And it's the most amazing thing we do. And language is a piece of linguistics. A linguist looks at why we have language to begin with. Where did it come from? What were the first words? Why do we even have words? How do you take a thought in your head and turn it into something that someone else can get in their own head? There is a lot to language. All the stories, all the songs, all the letters that were written, all the, all the silly kids' rhymes, all of it that is such a central part of your culture and your heritage and your sense of who you are. Currently, there are somewhere around 7,000 languages on Earth, although that number is rapidly dwindling. Each of those languages have their own vocabulary, syntax, that's the pattern of the words, and grammar. And most human languages share some central commonalities, universal rules that might be applicable to, well, other universes. There are things in the world, and we have words for things. There are going to be things in their world, too. And if they have language they'll have words for things. I feel reasonably confident about that. So then there'll be actions that can be performed on things. And we do actions on things. It seems pretty pretty dang basic. So nouns and verbs. And maybe they're going to have ways of differentiating one object from another. So maybe they'll be kind of adjective-ish things. And I'm not making any bets about what order these will go in or what they'll be like or uh, what the medium of communication is going to be. But I feel like if there's any kind of language communication at all, we'll have some things like that. She makes an interesting point. There's always the possibility that communication would happen not through language, spoken, written, signed language, but through some other medium entirely. 
that's gloriously up for grabs. I mean, we could have color patches, we could have chemical signals, we could have radio waves, we could have uh, some kind of analogy of the sense of smell, we could have gestural language, we could have acoustics at the same time as we have gesture, we could have any medium that can serve as a way of information going from one body to another body could be the medium for language. Despite all these options, we would probably be communicating with another culture like ours in that it would have to be someone that had similar technology. In other words, species that also use radio telescopes, or at least know how they work, and can get our message right. If there are dolphins on other planets, if there are people on living in water worlds, radio telescope is not going to be the plan. Uh, maybe there'll be different plans some other time, but right now what we have is radio telescopes. So we think about radio telescope kinds of people, which means they built a radio telescope, right? So that's a thing we have in common. So to do that, you have to have some understanding of some basic science. We'll be coming back to dolphins shortly. But if we have radio telescope technology in common, it means we share basic science. And in all likelihood, it means that we probably also share math. It's because you need math to build a radio telescope, right? Um, you need math to figure out the science to build a radio telescope. And math is a thing that you can do. If I go beep, beep, and then I go clerk, and then I go beep, 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 and then I go pop, and then I go beep, 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 beep. So I got a two and a funny thing and three and another funny thing and then a five. There's a lot of ways you can misinterpret that, right? But one possible way of interpreting it is the way I meant it, which is the first yeah, means plus and the quack means equals. And then I repeat that a bunch of times until you're sick of it or until you get it. And then you're off to the races. But as things get more complex, the number of assumptions you make grows. And this is where things get tricky. I mean, they're already tricky because we're chatting with an alien civilization, but they get even more tricky. Because as we move past math into actual communication, there's some real potential to get things wrong. Oh, yeah. Easy. We could mess it up like glory. We just could make a... I mean, think, of the, think, of, think, about, think about how easy it is to misinterpret something that your buddy says to you over breakfast, right? I mean, think about the ways that we misunderstand one another in relationships. And these are people that we're close to, right? That we have every, we have every vested interest in understanding. People who speak the exact same language as we do. Think about the last time you read an email or a tweet with the worst possible interpretation. Something that made you furious or scared when the sender didn't mean it that way. Now consider just how badly intergalactic communication might go. That's one of the reasons that some people, like Stephen Hawking, have raised concerns about sending out messages. While listening is harmless, actually transmitting has more potential dangers. You don't know who or what might receive our missives or how they might respond. But as Sherry points out, the toothpaste is already out of the tube. The broadcasts we've already transmitted, the military radar, Voyager... Anyone with a powerful enough telescope can go right ahead and blast their message out into the galaxy. Although she's really not that concerned. We are a very young civilization, and we don't honestly know what we're doing, which is good news, actually. If there are civilizations out there for us to contact, they will almost certainly be older than ours. So A, they probably know we're here anyway. 
or at least they're finding out now, um, because we're uh, we've had radio for a while, right? So they might be finding out now-ish that we're out there, depending on where their star is. Um, when they get a message from us, it won't be to them. It won't be, wow, that's amazing. It'll probably be more like, okay, there comes another one. They're new. They're young. They think radio is cool. They're still using radio telescopes. Okay, got it. And then they'll decide what they're going to do about that. Um, and, you know, they're all many light years away. So there's not much they can do about that. I don't feel, I don't feel very imperiled at all. Whew. Breathing a sigh of relief. Good luck, next generations. You're the ones who get to worry about this highly speculative problem. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As with everything in this series, the amount of time and distance adds another layer of complexity. We touched on this a little bit earlier during our tour of the solar system. Let's say we send out a message using a radio telescope. It reaches an alien civilization some 200 light years away. Let's say they're able to decode our message quickly and send something back. It's still been 400 years. It's hard to hold a conversation over that kind of distance. And because it takes so long, our own language might evolve to the point where we don't understand the message we originally sent out. Because in 50 years, language doesn't change that much. But in, in 100 years, maybe not so much. But we struggle with Shakespeare, right? We're constantly rereading and reinterpreting Shakespeare's works. To be or not to be, that is the question. Or as written in another version, to be or not to be, aye, there's the point. Is it about suicide or taking action? These lines and plenty others get a lot of heavy use, and we're still not entirely sure we understand them. Sherry argues that with any message we send out into the universe, we have to constantly check in on it, make sure we still understand what we said, in case anyone ever replies. So we have to know what we sent and where we sent it, and we have to have um, a system by which we still understand what it is we said. And that uh, system has got to stay alive for ever, for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So the only human institutions that really last that long are uh, religious entities, sometimes last for hundreds or thousands of years, right? And um, there are some breweries that have lasted several hundred years. So... You know, it's the intergalactic monks of the Golden Stein or something like that is what we need. Sounds fun. I vote we go ahead and get that started. Let's not make it celibate. But if we really want to get some practice trying to communicate with species other than ourselves, we don't have to look to space. We've got plenty of company right here. You know, the old Far Side cartoon where the scientists, there's a tank of dolphins and there's these scientists and they have a blackboard and they're writing on the blackboard and one of them says there's that hable espanol vocalization again you know and the dolphins are trying everything there's sprechen sie deutsch and parlez-vous français and 
you know, and that's about it. It's like we have all these animals and we're staring at the stars and going, I wonder if we're alone. It's like, you who hable espanol, anything. They're trying to communicate. Lawrence Doyle is affiliated with the SETI Institute. He's an astrophysicist whose focus has been on exoplanet research. But at some point in his career, he decided to take a sharp turn into the world of animal communication. What I've done is I've applied uh, information theory to non-human communication systems. Bell Labs invented information theory in the 1950s as a way to figure out the minimal amount of communication equipment needed, like telephone lines, to send a message that can be understood. Lawrence adapted this theory to look at communication between humans and non-humans. What was the minimal amount of information that was needed to get a message across? Since we don't yet have any extraterrestrials to try this experiment with, he decided to test these ideas out with animals. And so my idea was to use non-human communication systems as a proxy for an intelligent signal from a non-human. So we started to analyze bottlenose dolphins and humpback whales and marine mammals in general because they put so much of their information into signals that we can detect. You know, you could say, well, how about chimpanzees? Well, chimps use facials and signal and gestures like we do. Whereas humpback whales don't generally do that. They they have communication system that's mostly audio. So we'd be getting most of the information by listening with hydrophones. Hydrophones. These are a special type of microphone designed to be used underwater for recording or listening to underwater sound. So where SETI uses radio telescopes to find specific types of transmissions from space, Lawrence is doing a modified version of this underwater. Same general idea, but they're coming at it from different angles. SETI up till now has really been the search for extraterrestrial technology, but they do ask the question, is there a transmitter? SETI is looking for technology that shows aliens can send a message. If they find one, they know there's a transmitter. But they don't have a good sense of how intelligent the species is that built it. Lawrence wanted to go a step further and use information theory as a way to determine intelligence. Lost? So was I. But he gave an example that helped make sense of this. It's called Zipf Z-I-P-F. And George Zipf was a linguist that before, bless their heart, before uh, word processors, he had his students count the letters in the book Ulysses. How many E's, how many T's, how many A's, how many Q's, and so on. I cannot imagine. Ulysses is a slog. 265,222 words, over 700 pages long. Counting the letters? I would rather chew glass. Also, did they have to double-check their work? Anyway, George Zipf took his saintly student's findings. How frequent E's occur? It's about 8%. And then how often do T's occur? And that's about six and a half percent and on down to Q's, which occurred about 0.1% of the time. What he found is that the second most common letter occurred approximately half as often as the first most common. The third most common occurred one third as often as the first and so on down the line. Graphed out using a logarithmic scale, this information showed up as a downward 45 degree slope. A minus one slope. So that's interesting for Ulysses. What if I take a Chinese book and plot the characters? Minus one. Same slope. What if I do a Russian conversation with Russian phonemes? Minus one. 
So he plotted dozens and dozens of languages and got this minus one slope. An apology to all those students of the humanities. I'm sorry to report that even language boils down to math. You cannot get away from it. Scientists think that if a message obeys Zipf's law, it indicates that it's a real language, that meaningful knowledge is being transmitted. Now, this was supposed to just apply to human communications. But Lawrence and his colleagues, Brenda McCowan and Sean Hanser, had an idea. I had gotten some data from my colleague, Brenda McCowan, at UC Davis, and she had recorded whistles and classified them from uh, bottlenose dolphins. So I did a plot, and I got a minus one slope for dolphin whistles. Whoa. I know. That was one of those moments in science where you go, whoa. It was really neat. I remember it very clearly. I went and had a cup of tea and then did the plot again just to make sure. And it was the introduction of information theory in the non-human communication systems. So by measuring how complex communications are for different species on Earth, we could get a sense of how advanced an extraterrestrial signal is, should the opportunity ever arise. Even more mind-blowing? It turned out two baby dolphins were born at Marine World. So we recorded them, and they landed right on human babbling, minus 0.3. Earlier tests had found that when the babbling of human babies was plotted, it had a downward slope of 0.3. The baby dolphins were the same. So, little guys were babbling their whistles until they got to be about 20 months. And then they were, by then they were obeying this law. So we caught dolphins actually learning their whistle language. After spending 90 minutes on the phone with Lawrence, I started plotting my cat's meows. So far, I haven't been able to decipher a pattern, but I'm not giving up. And what other animals might be holding intelligent conversations? Over the course of his research, he's discovered that the language of humpback whales has specific rules that allow them to communicate, even if they don't hear everything the other whales are saying. They could fill in the missing words because there are, quote, big quotes here, grammar and spelling rules. In other words, there were conditional probabilities between signals, which in human language we call syntax. Syntax is how words and phrases are arranged to create sentences that make sense. And humans have spent a lot of time thinking they're the only ones who communicate this way. Whoops. Now, not all animals do this. No, they don't. Uh, Squirrel monkeys don't obey this law, and ground squirrels certainly don't. I'm starting to think that maybe my cats don't either. But birds do. In fact, in February 2020, scientists in Italy found that the speech patterns of African penguins followed Zipf's law. And that may have less to do with how closely related they are to us and more to do with how complex their societies are. I don't know anybody that studied animals that I've met in my career that said they're dumber than I thought when I started. It never goes that way. They're always smarter. We've discovered amazing things about non-human communication systems so far, and this is just the start. To be clear, I'm not saying we should stop sending missives to the stars, but we have an opportunity to practice a little bit right here at home, before we have to talk intelligently with any aliens. I will confess, though, that a small part of me can't help wondering if Stephen Hawking was right. What if there are aggressive, man-eating aliens looking for their next target? We don't know what's out there or what they're like. And what we think they're like has often been shaped by popular culture. As Doug Vakoch, the president of Medi, points out... When we, when we start imagining that other civilizations are out there, it pulls for our 
our greatest fantasies and our worst nightmares. And so in the same way that we fear an alien invasion, I think sometimes we hope that finally all of our problems here on Earth will help solve because the aliens will tell us what to do. Coming up, we'll visit some of the places our imaginations have taken us. From the day the Earth stood still? My mission here is not to solve your petty squabbles. It concerns the existence of every last creature on Earth. To the uncertain future of annihilation. Our bodies and our minds will be fragmented into their smallest parts until not one part remains. Do the aliens who populate these science fiction worlds represent what could actually be out there? Or are they just extensions of ourselves and the limits of our imaginations? We'll find out on the next episode of Wild Thing, Space Invaders. If you're enjoying Wild Thing, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to good stories. And definitely tell your friends, because all of this really helps get the word out about the show and makes another season possible. You can find at Wild Thing Pod on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and check out the website, wildthingpodcast.com. That's wildthingpodcast, all one word, for more information about the show. And, of course, for some cool stickers. This podcast is a production of Foxtopus, Inc. Our executive producer is Scott Carney. Editing is by Alicia Lipinski. And the score and sound mixing come from Louis Weeks. I'm your host and creator, Laura Krantz.